0: Our theme music is provided by Mazen. You can find her website at masonmusic.com. That's M-A-E-S-Y-N. Hello, hello, hello out there. My guest filmmaker and impact producer Lise King is back with us for part two of our conversation. Behind us is a prayer for rescue from Peadora Tango Ensemble.
1: I couldn't really reconcile the values that my dad, especially, was aspiring for me based on survival and the American dream and what I experienced in the world. And also I was living in New York in the late 80s and early 90s, and it was a really rough then. That was a difficult time in New York City. And a friend of mine named Kenny O'Brien, who was a leather clothing designer um, in Manhattan who I had met at a 12-step meeting, he revealed to me that he had AIDS. This is in 1990. And he asked me if I would come pray with him in South Dakota. He was the black sheep of his family. His dad was a major pharmaceutical executive. He had a house in Montauk as well as his place in Soho. And he had a sweat lodge. He was one of the original rainbow people, family kind of people. He was this amazing guy. And Kenny, I don't know if any of our listeners from New York, probably somebody, because Kenny was like famous in New York, in Lower Manhattan. And he was like, you know, wore leathers with studs. He has these amazing clothes. He, he did a leather work for Billy Idol's Rebel Yell Tour 2. And I got to be in a fashion show with Deborah Harry because he was doing Deborah Harry's Sweet and Low Tour, all her leathers. And Kenny was like, yeah, I'm a big Mary. Anybody got a freaking problem with that." I mean, he was just like, he was too much. And he just was like... So it was such a force of nature. So when he told me that he had AIDS and asked me if I would come to South Dakota and come pray with him, with a medicine man, as a way to sort of seek healing, this is before all of the drug cocktails and everything. Of course I said yes. Of course I said yes. You know, someone asks you to do something like that, you say yes. So he and Seth Goldstein, another friend of ours and I, we went to South Dakota went to South Dakota we did it and we were there for two weeks and prayed at a Sundance and we were there for ceremony and that was really that experience is really what changed my life it was like you know I, I wanted to pray for Kenny and they said well why don't you go and you participate as in the dance in the Sundance and I was like can I do that I'm just like I'm like white girl these the East Coast. and they're like yes here and they, they like threw me into the ceremony for Kenny and and I said what do I do and they said well you see all those people that are gathering around you know on, in the arbor like they're here for because they're looking for help we chose the awoke you which is help and help he said so they just said so just pray for them just pray for them that's what your purpose is And so, you know, it was like no food, no water, sun dancing me, like just thrown into this thing. I had no idea what I was doing. had no idea what the consequences of that commitment would be. But that was where I made a commitment that I was there to serve the people who came and said, you know, looking for whatever it is. Yeah, so it was kind of impossible to turn back from there and that's really what shaped the trajectory of my life and that's people say how did you end up in South Dakota you know marrying this Native American guy and living on the reservation well that's that's the beginning that's how it started. Bineczko.
0: What do you think about the, the ritualistic power of documentation and in terms of its artistic power?
1: Working on Heroin Cape Cod, um, there's a power in a camera. Well, look what happens when people have cameras put on them. Like, it makes them into celebrities. It makes them into, you know, they get attention. Um, and when you're in a private space with someone who is hurting and self-medicating with whatever substance it is or whatever behavior it is you are saying with the camera i care about you we care about you you mean something you have a value like camera the camera can be a powerful experience of like feeling validated feeling loved. Someone's paying attention to me. They want to know what my story is. What do I have to say? Right. And so there is a great responsibility when you're the person behind the camera, asking the questions and capturing people's utterings, their stories, their recountings, their memories or whatever they choose to tell. And invariably what I found um, as a director and as the person asking questions or, you know, even in the time painting time film, documentary films often when you're talking to somebody like from like heroin cape cod you're talking to people who are not practiced in front of a camera so it becomes part of my job to communicate with them create a relationship with them create that holding environment so that there's a space of trust and um like i think you referred to this much earlier creating a safe safe place but what that does is It's not universally, not 100% true, but a lot of the time people will share more than they intended to when they first said yes, when they first said, okay, I'll sit down and talk with you on camera. And part of it is because that act of testifying, I mean, it's a universal spiritual practice, right? Whether that's testifying in church or in a confession booth or in an AA meeting or standing up in front of a church or whatever that is we know that that process of storytelling of telling that truth is a healing process. It's a cleansing, right? It's, it's, it's a relieving us of that burden of that heaviness that we have from something maybe that we're struggling with. That's what therapy is about is, you know, it's like storytelling. So create that safe space, build a relationship, get someone in front of the camera spend time with them over a period of days or weeks or months. Every single one of the young women who we worked with on Heroin Cape Cod, at some point, it was like popping a balloon and like the stories came out of things that, you know, were just a relief for them to say on camera. And sometimes it was about things that they were ashamed of having done in order to be able to get drugs, including sex work and other things. And part of our responsibility as a filmmaker and as someone gathering these stories is to have a caring and a compassion and an awareness of not, not just that other person in the moment, but how Including perhaps that piece of their story could impact them. You know, like once you put it out on the internet, once you put something on HBO, once you tell a story like that, you keep, you know, it's out there forever, right? In some form, and sometimes more than others. But HBO is a pretty big platform. So we had a vetting process in the beginning that I was taught. I already had my own internal sort of mechanism for it. But we had a very specific set of guidelines about who would make an appropriate subject and then even those people we even with the filters we had in place about who got to be included it couldn't be it, there were we we had certain tests to make sure that they wouldn't we don't want to hurt anyone it's the do no harm principle right we want their participation to end up being something that helps them in their lives not hurting them so We didn't edit anything out before we sent it to, you know, to Steven or when Steven was sometimes was with us or with me, but to HBO's credit, Sheila Nevins was like, you know, the world loves a comeback story. A comeback story from alcohol and drug abuse is always a welcome story. But for women, especially if you're talking about like sex work, that needs to be something that they are, 1000% comfortable with putting out in the world and understand the repercussions because there is it's very hard to come back. There's some some in some ways there's no forgiveness that happens for some folks. So all of that is part of the decision making process and the responsibility of asking people those questions and the answers that they give. You're
0: seeing your job is like a midwife. It just sounds like there's some sort of ritualistic guardianship. There's um, mm-hmm. there's a whole process that you take very seriously in terms of the person's overall well being. If
1: someone says something on camera, even when you know you're working on a big show, um, there has to be an understanding that if you know consciously. That if that piece of information, you know, and this is not someone who's a public figure, public figures are in a different, once you've entered the realm of public figure, it's a, you know, even legally, legally, it's a very different situation. But if you have someone who's not a public figure, they're a private citizen and they've trusted you, they've let you into their world and they reveal something on camera that could destroy them in some way, There is a responsibility for trust that, you know, at the very least, it's a conversation. At the very least, it's a conversation. And what's interesting is that (laughs) nine times out of 10, you go back to them and you're like, do you really want to tell this? The answer is yes. It's yes. So this does get back to your question about like, How is it a ritual? How is it ceremony? Like, how is it a spiritual practice? It's weird. I'd never expected, never expected it. When you saw heroin Cape Cod, you know, the two of our subjects died of heroin overdoses during the filming, not when we were with them. I was trained on how to use Narcan. I worked with the aid support group, you know, aid support group of Cape Cod. I volunteered with them. I learned, they, you know, Dan Gates and that whole crew—they were amazing. Um, Kim was amazing. They were very generous in sharing information and tools and training on how to use Narcan. <laughs> like there was a lot that went into being able to really feel like comfortable with because it was a huge response. It felt like a big responsibility. So when Ariana died, and she had been in recovery for two years, and then had taken off and was living in one of the encampments in the woods uh, down in Falmouth. When she passed away from a heroin overdose, and actually, her brother's an EMT worker, and he had he went on that call. He's the one who found her. It was just it's a terrible, tragic story. Stephen called me. Um, he was back in Berkeley, and he was like, "Well." you got to go get the baby pictures. And I was like, what? He was like, yep, it's part of the job. You got to call, you got to get in touch with Ariana's mom and you've got to find out, you know, you're going to have to get some, we need some context to her life. So not to go too much into that rabbit hole because it was a whole story about how, what it was like to try to reach Ariana's mom and get in touch with her. But I eventually did, and she agreed to meet with me. And I went to her house. In the trailer for the film, you see those two little kids running around, and those are Ariana's children. So those are her grandchildren who are now without a mom. And I went to her house and found a beautiful little, like you know, one-story. What they call a little ranch house, and it was a beautiful day, like today, summer kind of day, and. The breezeway was open, and I walked in, and there was a kitchen table, a round kitchen table, kind of very spare space. The kitchen table was piled with photographs. Her graduation from high school, her baby pictures, with friends, her prom, just piles of photographs. And I looked at that pile of photographs and I, I was carrying in my scanner, you know, I had to scan the pictures so that we could use them on this film for HBO and this woman's daughter had just died. And I was, I was just like, my heart was just stopping. And I said to her, my job as a producer on this film is to come and get these photos from you and scan them for HBO. I said, but I'm gonna step out of that role for a minute. I said, talking to you as a mom, I have a daughter close in age to what Ariana was at the time. And I said, you know, Shyla, your daughter's now 30. And I said, "Um, you don't have to do this. (laughs) Like, You don't have to do this. Like as a mom, don't tell them I said this, but as a mom, I'm telling you like, you don't have to do this. This just feels weird. I feel uncomfortable. And she said, no, 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 it's okay. And she started crying and I started crying and we had a moment and I said, I need to know why it's okay. She said, Ariana was really proud to be in this movie because she said she'd struggled with being clean and sober and then not being clean and sober and then being clean. And and she said, Ariana said to me, Mama, I am really proud of being in this movie. She said, because, you know, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know if I'm going to make it, but if I'm in this movie and I can help one person get clean or stay clean, she said, it's worth it. It's worth it, mom. If I can help one other person, my life is worth it.
0: If you're just joining us now, you're listening to Healing Wisdom on WOMR and WFMR. I'm Pandora Peoples. We're speaking with filmmaker and impact producer, Lise King. This is part two of a two-part conversation.
1: After Heroin Kip Cod, I went to see Sarah Bernstein, who was our executive at at HBO at the time. She was a vice president of documentary films, HBO, and I was pitching her a project and she said, I'm not really sure if that's for us, but would you maybe be willing to do for other projects what you did for Heroin Kip Cod? And I was like, sure, you know. So that's how I became an impact producer for HBO that she hired me and I worked on Three more films for HBO, Risky Drinking, 32 Pills, My Sister's Suicide. Like those are the types of, um, Warning This Drug May Kill You with Perry Peltz, who's an amazing woman. Um, And you hear her on, on she has a a, a radio show on on Sirius. And um, she was a journalist for many, many years. And as Steven would say, oh, you're working on the depression box set. (laughs) You know, it's like really difficult subject matter films. And it's my privilege and my honor to work on this kind of public health, mental health subject matter, you know? Oh, and then Sarah went over to Imagine Films to run their documentary film department. And then she hired me on Leave No Trace, which is about the Boy Scout sexual abuse scandal. Well, that was for Ron Howard and Brian Grazier and Imagine Films and Irene Taylor, um, who's an Oscar nominated Emmy winning director producer. That's her film. we, premiered it at Tribeca last year. Um, But the point is, I have that palate cleanser in there somewhere for my brain, for my heart, for my soul, so I don't go crazy, you know. Um, So the films I make for, like, the Provincet Community Compact, and Jay and the Ribbons Project, and um, the Esteban film, those are my passion projects. Those are the things that I do to fill myself back up, right? Because you just give so much when you're working on that kind of difficult subject matter. Plenty of people have jobs, you know, look at the, the frontline healthcare workers during COVID. I mean, it's so draining, it's really hard. So you have to find something that's going to feed you, fill you back up. And that's where those other films come in. I make them myself. I'm the usually just I'm the writer, the producer, the director, the cinematographer, the editor, <laughs> the composer. I'm, you know, I like to do it all. And, and I don't make, nobody pays me to do those. I just do them as a contribution um, to the nonprofit organizations that are involved with these projects. Yeah, so that's why I do it. And it's my pleasure and my honor to do it. And the, the piece that I made with Jay, the first one, um, Swim for Life, which I, I just went back and watched it again because we were speaking today, and I hadn't watched it in a while, a long while, and I was still really happy with it, which is great because you know you never know you can go. I mean, something to go back and you go cringe, you know. Um, but I'm just really feel very proud of that film. It felt like it captured the joie de vivre and the this spiritual sort of essence. I felt you know being out on the water with all the swimmers out there with Jay and. Um, and I was really captivated by the Swim for Life because where there were 400 swimmers of people swimming in dedication, it's it's a ceremony. They're like, I immediately said to Jay, this is like a Sundance. This is like a sweat lodge. This is like, this is a giving. This is, I am going to go out and I'm going to sacrifice in prayer, in thought, in expression and somehow sort of whatever some people don't like to use the word prayer whatever it's the same thing of like sending out caring energy about someone you love or a community or someone who's died whatever and you're sending that out and they're writing a message on a prayer ribbon and they're collecting the donations and then that moment when they dive into the water to swim across the deepest natural harbor on the east coast it's like 80 feet deep out there You know, it's like, there are all kinds of critters swimming around. It's just mind blowing. And I thought, you know, this is a ceremony. This is truly a ceremony where people are sacrificing. And by the way, a lot of a ceremony, whether it's for a Lakota ceremony or for the swim, it's the preparation that is really where the work is. When you finally are out there doing the thing, that's just the last chapter of the ceremony, that's the last piece. It's all the intention setting and the preparation and all that other part, all that leading up, that is a big part of it. So I, um, when I saw 400 swimmers, I, I saw 400 stories of people dedicating themselves to someone else or something else in, you know, out of love and i thought wow this is incredible i just was so moved by it so that's why i volunteered to make that film yeah so i feel very happy about that film still still i just yeah i made it years ago but yeah i still love it i would love to just talk a little bit about the film that was the two films that were in the festival because it it is important and they are local stories so and they're they're right now like the, the esteban del valle story have you looked at the At the mural? Uh, Just in the film. Well, I was just wondering if you had seen it before. Because some people, when they saw it in real life, before they saw the film, they didn't get that it was an exploding dune shack. Like, in the film, Esteban says, the dune shack is exploding because of privilege. And he goes into this whole thing about that. And when we made this film, there was no way we could have known what was coming now with the dune shacks being taken back by the seashore to then do this RFP, which completely negates the 2012 agreement that was created with deep community consultation and conversation to um, you know come up with a plan for how the, the use and the maintenance and the cultural recognition, the historical and cultural recognition of the importance of the dune shacks and the cultural continuity all that so the film does include that piece um but it's interesting because Esteban says that he was you know this this line isn't in the film but he does talk about it being you know his love letter to Provincetown like it was his way of expressing the the soul resonance for him for this place, which that is in the film when he says, you know, I believe, you know, that places have, you know, the certain magic and this this place has a certain magic and he talks about that. But that film, at the very end, I don't want to give it away for you who haven't seen it, but at the very end, it it calls on people to be aware and, you know, wake up to like we are and where we are and that soul resonance like you were saying that he talks about in the film about how you know van gogh he talks about van gogh and like that he has a certain tone and when he hits that tone that you can literally feel it in your body and it can like wake you up you know can wake up your creative soul and that um i firmly believe that i totally believe that and that he says my job as an artist is to make that pitch and hit it so hard and wake people up and so that film was intended at first just to be me pitching in as a founding board member of the Provincetown Public Art Foundation. I was like, this is a way I can be of service. I can document the making of the mural. That is not in itself a film, a capital F film. <laughs> that is a documenting, you know, it's just a documentation. It's like you put on cameras and you roll them. And you. it was after we went out to the dune shack to interview Esteban at the Harry Kemp Dune Shack inside the Dune Shack, where he had not been before, um, and that's what his mural is about. Um, then I knew that I had a film. The things that he said and that formed the backbone of the narrative throughout the film. So, um, yeah, I, I, I hope that people can get a chance to see it, and that's about the art, heart, the art spirit of Provincetown, the creative wildness and how it feeds all of us and all that good stuff. The other film, In the Whale, uh, is about the Michael Packard story when he was captured in the mouth of the humpback whale and then spit out and became worldwide sensational news. And people doubted it and said it was a fish story and all this this stuff. And David Abel, who is the director, producer, writer of that film, um, and I serve as a producer with him on that film, you know he calls it in the whale the greatest fish story ever told and you know he he talks about how he was sent out by the boston globe to debunk the story and instead was convinced that it was real and i had called him cuz we worked together on another film called entangled that's the one that we were nominated for an emmy for and said you know i know michael packard i've known him since we were kids i'm like you this is a great story and you dive you should somebody should be with him to film with Michael the first time he gets back in the water after this whale encounter and he says well I've already been thinking about it and I'm like okay cool he said I'm not so sure this and a whole story and I start telling him about the family who I've known my whole life. and anyway he connects with them. He knew Josiah Mayo because of the Entangled film and the rest is now, you know, Provincetown history that this film is now pretty, pretty much done. This was a work in progress screening, but it's, it's close to being finished and it premiered at town hall to a sold out crowd. I think it's because how important Michael Packard and the whole Packard family is and their story. And the fact that, you know, the fish, he's a fisherman and lobsterman and, The mom and sisters are artists, and that is, they're just so much a part of like the history and soul and culture of Providence Town. That's something unexpected happened making that film, which is back to your talk about the healing journey and how films, documentaries, when you turn a camera on someone, people can open up. Michael and also Josiah, just like he's his you know, helper person out on the water. He was definitely sort of second billing, you know, in the film. He talks about his struggles with his lifelong struggles with depression. And they both talk about alcohol and drug use. And the openness was kind of stunning that the whole family offered in saying, this is the truth. This is, this is that truth telling, right? This is, this, is, this, is, this is what we've struggled with, all this tragedy. And it's already hard enough to be here in the winter and depressing. And, you know, there can be issues and stuff. But they told so much. And this was one of those times when, you know, David and I spoke about it. And it was like, you know, are they okay with having their stories out there? and the trick of it is to have gone through enough of the struggle and have tried and failed and then tried and succeeded to certain degrees and to find your way in the world till so you get to a place where you know that sharing your story is a gift because it gives people who are also struggling perhaps in a way that they can relate that resonance right relate to what you've been through they know they're not alone. And they know that there's hope. And we find hope and that sense in community and knowing that I'm not struggling alone. And so I don't have to get out of this alone either. And they all said yes. They, oh my gosh, they all said yes, yes, tell our story. Yep, we told it because we wanted to tell it. it put it out there. And it was stunning, you know, and people were crying in the screening. It was really moving. So I guess in a way that's kind of the highest calling and the highest answering of this job is that we don't get it all right all the time for sure. But when you can have that meeting and that trust and that moment happens and then you put it in a place where It can be broadcast out to others where people can hear the message, see the message, relate to the message or the story that, you know, that's what it's all about. That's when the healing can happen. that's when we find love and community and we find inspiration from, from, you know, from a piece of film, from a story being told.
0: Beautifully put. Thank you so much, Lise King. Thank you very much.
1: (laughs) This is a, you know, um, an unexpected pleasure. So I really appreciate you giving me a chance to tell part of my story.
0: You've been listening to Healing Wisdom at Outermost Radio. All of our shows are podcasts at WOMR.org. Also check out Healing Wisdom Radio Show.com and contact me at Pandora at WOMR.org.